Good evening. Welcome to the Independent News Hour here on 99.5 FM. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org and our latest print edition in uh, our red and white news boxes across the city, also in uh, a number of public libraries, independent bookstores, and other venues. It's great to be back with you. And We've got another great show in store for tonight. In a minute, we're going to get an update on the largest labor strike in the country. 3,000 graduate student workers at Columbia University have been on strike now for more than two months. We're also going to hear from the vulgar Marxist, Matthew Thomas, and his, his latest investigation looks at how Columbia and other private universities in New York City get away with not paying more than a half a billion dollars per year in property taxes. Hmm, what could we do with that money? And we'll also hear from birth justice advocate Nilu Shruti, who says pregnant people looking for healthy alternatives to hospital birthing have just been betrayed by Governor Kathy Hochul. Also, I'll be hosting the WBAI Evening News at 6 p.m., filling in for our regular host, Paul DiRienzo. And joining us will be New York City public advocate Jamani Williams. Uh, He'll be our special guest, and we'll be taking calls from listeners. So you'll want to stick around for that. I'll also be asking you to contribute to the WBAI emergency fund drive to pay the rent at four times square, uh, the skyscraper that houses our transmitter and antenna. But that will come later. Now we turn to our first segment at Columbia University, where 3,000 graduate student workers have been on strike for two months as of yesterday. It's the largest active labor strike in the country right now. The workers have held strong, and Columbia and Columbia's management has started to make some substantial concessions. This is a university whose endowment has grown from about $11 billion to more than $14 billion during the pandemic. But there's still at least one major sticking point that's holding up an agreement. Joining us now to talk about the strike and the negotiations is Sarmad Akach, an organizer with Student Workers of Columbia. He's a Fulbright Scholar and a master's student at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia. Sarmad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Sure. So um, for, for starting out for our listeners, um, before we go into the details of the negotiations, can uh, you just quickly remind us of, of what y'all have gone on strike for, what your major uh, demands have been? Yeah, that's right. Um, we've been on strike for eight weeks now. Um, and at the commencement of the strike, we had some um, key demands. Um, the first of them was we wanted um, neutral and fair arbitration in cases of uh, discrimination and harassment. Um, Columbia has a very bad track record of um, handling such claims. Um, in the last five years, uh, 95% of claims that were made fell of sexual harassment discrimination claims fell in favour of faculty. Um, so we want neutral arbitration, which means that if a victim of sexual harassment or discrimination makes a claim, they can refer to a third party outside of the university to handle the investigation. Uh, the second um article that we're, we're demanding is compensation. Um, that's a living wage that's commensurate with living in New York City. Um, and the third claim was comprehensive uh, healthcare um, that included uh, dental and vision. Um, and the fourth and final point was um, unit recognition, meaning that everyone, according to the NLRB, the National um, Labor Relations Board, be included in the unit um, so that they are covered by these protections. 
Right. Now, I understand you all have made a substantial progress on, I think, three of those four uh, demands. It seems like the university's uh, uh, buckling a little bit. Can you talk about the the progress you've made at the at the bargaining table? Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> Columbia's getting really desperate now. Um, this is the strike's been incredibly disruptive um, for both undergraduate and graduate students. Um, we have been uh, successful in obtaining uh, protections um, for uh, cases of discrimination harassment that allow um, a student worker at Columbia to seek independent arbitration um, if they're subject to those um, conditions. Um, we've also uh, been able to get them to raise the wage um, from $15. At the moment, it's up to $21, but we're hoping to still get that up uh, to $22 starting in January next year. Um, and we've also uh, managed to get them to include, uh, largely include dental care um, for uh, student workers, um, uh, which had previously been omitted. Um, and the last and final point, which we're in the process of negotiating, is re- recognition of our, all of our unit members um, according to state and to federal law. So uh, how many of, of your members are they trying to keep out of the unit, roughly? I know, I know there's a lot of... departments at the university to keep track of, but how extensive is their effort to keep people out of the union? Yeah, we actually feel that at the moment, it's probably we anticipate that uh, about 50% of the workers would be excluded. Um, But what we are more concerned about than how many excludes in the first place is that this is the first ever contract at Columbia University. It's entire, it's 200 year history. No agreement has been reached between student workers and the university. So we fear that if we don't get recognition in the first contract, in five years' time at the next contract, there's going to be new issues and recognition is going to be completely off the table. Um, It also creates a two-tier system, which means that um, Columbia can systematically restructure hiring processes um, as per the agreement um, to exclude workers in the future. And we've seen universities like Brown and Harvard attempt to do the same thing. And also, I mean, we've seen in in this sort of uh, um, a season of uh, labor strikes uh, across the country that uh, two tier systems uh, it's prevalent in the I mean the auto industry. We saw it with the the Kellogg's uh, workers who were on strike for two months. So it, it, it's interesting. It's it's not only uh, something that happens in industrial unions, but it also is happening at this uh, prestigious university. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and even more locally, um, the clerical workers at Columbia uh, in the past um, had exactly the same issues um, and they converted many of the uh, appointments, the part-time appointments, uh, to casual appointments. So even Columbia has a track record of casualizing workers and creating a two-tier system. Right. And, and can you describe uh, what kind of work the 3,000 members of your union do just for yeah, our listeners? Yes. Yeah, they can broadly be divided into um, teaching assistants and research assistants. Um, Teaching assistants uh, do anything from holding office hours, um, managing logistics of uh, of a course, replying to student emails, um, grading assignments, writing exam questions. Uh, So any of those things fall under TA's responsibilities. Um, I'll give you an example. So if you have a course, an undergraduate course, let's say a history subject, you'll have about 150 students in that. You only have one professor. 
And underneath that professor, you usually have about 10 to 15 TAs that really do the bulk of work. The instructor can only take one session of 10 students. They do the main lecture and then they can only take a um, section of 10 to 15 students. So it's really all of us graduate workers that provide that um, that one-on-one close instructional services. Okay. And, and, and um, as you were starting to say, they, they want to structure the, the contract in a way that would not only uh, keep about 50% of your members out of, out of the bargaining unit and, and deny them these benefits we've been talking about, but it sounds like they could, could by structuring it that way, they would create incentives for themselves to to try to steer as many more people into um into a a casual uh, work uh status outside of the union yeah that's absolutely correct john that's exactly what they would do they you know for example classic example that um for brown university have been doing you take a 20 hour position but now the cutoff is you have to work a minimum of 15 hours and they split one 20 hour job into two 10 hour casual jobs. And there's just nothing that the student worker can do about that. Every, anyone is going to seek, you know, if you, if you um, say, look, we have two 10 hour jobs going, someone's going to apply for it. Someone's going to take that job. Whereas as it stands now, that's one 20 hour job and that person is covered. So it's very, very simple for the administration to restructure a hiring appointment and simply make it a casual appointment. There's absolutely no reason they can't do that. Right. And and I understand the the administration wants a five-year contract agreement. The union's seeking a three-year agreement. Obviously, a five-year contract agreement would give them uh, even more time to uh, pursue this uh, this uh, two-tier system. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Um, and it is their hope that um, it would weaken the union over five years. They have more time to fragment the union. Um, and so that's why we're very cautious of a, um, a, long-term, a long-term appointment. It also gives them more time to uh, normalise the casualization of workers. So that in five years' time, students just think it's normal to be employed on a casual appointment and not have the protections. They don't know that previously people were on permanent appointments and were covered under the unit. Right. So, so where are y'all uh, going to do going forward? Where, where do negotiations go from here? Uh, that's right. That's a good question. So at the moment um, we're holding a, um, uh, a meeting t- tonight actually. Um, and then we're going to meet with the university at the start of next week. Um, but we are trying to situate ourselves in a position where recognition is non-negotiable. We've just released a petition um, in the last week. We've had 1,600 people sign on to that petition um, advocating for full unit recognition as per federal law. Um, That's included students, um, graduate workers, and faculty professors as well. And and can you talk about the solidarity you've received uh, not only from full-time faculty members at at your campus community, but from the broader labor movement here in New York? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The the, uh, solidarity has been amazing. Um, we've had uh, the other unions from uh, other universities uh, that have been um, supporting us. Um, the Teamsters have brought down um, Scabby the Rat down to campus, um, the big <laughs> giant blow-up rat. Um, we have had um, the Amazon union supporting us. Um, we've had Congress who have written all the elected representatives of um, the U.S. Congress have written a letter of support to the university 
I'm advocating for a fair agreement. Um, we also had uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, um, Cole Bollinger, President Bollinger, twice in support of us. So there's really been really amazing solidarity um, for labor unions and for the Columbia workers. Right. And the, the university um, uh, last month, I think they set a December 10th uh, deadline for uh, striking uh, graduate student workers to uh, essentially uh, s- surrender and if they wanted to be reappointed for the spring semester. I mean, it's, it seemed like a pretty flagrant attempt at a uh, union busting. Uh, how, how did that work out? And did the, uh, did the university achieve what it uh, wanted to, or um, were, were y'all able to uh, see your way through that? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it was an egregious example of union busting um, and retaliation. Uh, in terms of our unit, um, it was unsuccessful in busting the union. We had uh, a vote to um, continue through that week uh, of 85% of our unit members um, voted to continue going on strike. So fortunately it had no effect on busting the unit, um, but it has resulted in um, our uh, union uh, filing an unfair labour practice um, against Columbia University. Okay. And uh, last question before we have to go, which is uh, for our listeners who, who might want to uh, both uh, follow the strike more, but also uh, su- try to support y'all, what can they do and where can they go for more information? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, we've got a website, um, which is if you just Google um, SWC, so Social Workers of Columbia, um, which has our regular updates. Um, you you mean Student also, Workers of Columbia? Uh, sorry, Student Workers of Columbia. Uh, SWC um, Columbia, uh, and it will have links to our Twitter and Instagram there with the most up-to-date information. And through those pages and through our websites, uh, we have generic templates that you can um, simply copy and paste and email to administrators um, of the university um, in support of the the labor union. And and in terms of um, uh, material support, some of your members have been without paychecks for a while. That's a way for people to... Yes, on the website as well, um, there is a, a you can donate to our hardship fund. Um, uh-huh. The hardship fund basically uh, supports us um, in being able to go on strike because, um, as you know, we, we, we're not getting paid while we're on strike from the university. We're, we're withholding our labor. So donations can be made through the webs- uh, through our website as well. Okay. Well, Sarmad Akash, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. You bet. So we once again, we got to hear from uh, organizer with the Student Workers of Columbia leading the largest active union strike in the country right now. And we'll be back with more after a short break.
Lost in a Lonely World by The Ethics. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, our latest news at independent.org. Uh, so uh, we have a, um, uh, another uh, segment coming up here where we're going to talk about private universities and the way they avoid taxes here in New York City to an unbelievable extent. We're looking forward to talking uh, with the investigative reporter who's been digging around about that, uh, Matthew Thomas, the vulgar Marxist. Uh, but before we uh, go to this second segment, uh, I want to uh, urge all our uh, listeners who can do so to please uh, give to WBAI's emergency fund drive uh, the, for the tower, for the um, being able to pay the rent at four times square where this station's transmitter and antenna are located. Four Times Square is a 52-story skyscraper right in Midtown. And we have both a, a, a small room where our transmitter is located and then the antenna up at the top of the building that allows us to beam this signal all across the five boroughs of New, New York City and far beyond, all the way down New Jersey, almost into Pennsylvania, also out across Long Island, into Connecticut, and up the Hudson River Valley. Uh, this 50,000-watt signal right in the F, in the middle of the FM dial. It's an unbelievable resource. You know how much this station is able to do, all the great shows, the the news and uh, current events, the, the cultural programming, the music, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Can't do it without that antenna and that transmitter at the top of four times square. It's New York City. We have to pay $17,000 a month in rent. And that's what we're trying to make sure and cover. We've, uh, with so far in the last couple of weeks, we've raised enough money to get caught up on our bills and, and also start to get ahead on our bills. But we need to get further ahead so that this station can be financially stable in 2022, not be looking over our shoulder every month about this uh, bill we have to pay to you know, to our capitalist uh, landlords at Four Times Square. Uh, so uh, the phone number two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Again, that's two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Or you can go to give number two wbai dot org. You can make a one time contribution, or you can sign up as a WBAI buddy, make a recurring monthly donation of as little as ten dollars a month, and you will be eligible for all sorts of awesome benefits. Now. Um, I don't want to just bombard you with the the phone number here. So I I want to uh, take a moment to just uh, tell a quick story about a good friend of mine and uh, and it'll reinforce I think why we need to support uh this station. In our current issue of the Independent on page 2, uh, I wrote some reflections um on the on the li- the very uh, noble life of, of my good friend uh, uh Gerald uh Jerry Meyer uh uh, Jerry uh, died in November at the age of 81, uh, tragically after a fall on the steps outside of his home. Uh, Jerry was a retired uh, CUNY uh, professor at Hostos Community College, a history professor there. Uh, he was one of the founding faculty members in the early 1970s. And uh, Jerry came from very uh, humble uh, a background in Hoboken, New Jersey, working class family there, first person in his family to go to college and later became a college professor, a history professor at Hostos. And he was really the leading force in the mid-70s organizing the Save Hostos Coalition that uh, saved that um, that college from being 
uh, closed during the, the the financial crisis of the mid seventies that uh, was used to attack all sorts of social services here in New York. And Jerry did an incredible job building up the coalition um, that uh, fought for and saved Hostess Community College. And, and uh, Jerry later in his life unexpectedly became a, uh, a wealthy man. He bought some abandoned buildings in the late seventies for almost nothing and fixed them up and uh, discovered he'd become a, a multimillionaire many years later. And he, he gave generously to support all sorts of leftist causes. He um, had been with the left his really his whole life. I mean, all the way back to grade school when he was thrown out of Catholic school because a cat, uh, a nun caught him with reading a, a, a book uh, with anti uh, McCarthy themes. Now in this article, yeah, Jerry was a great guy, like I said, supported all sorts of causes. He loved to give his money away. And he had done this when he was, you know, broke, you know, broke as hell as a young man. He he would like he would tell me about how he, you know, even when he was like using the five finger discount to get his food, he would save up his uh, nickels and dimes and quarters to be able to send in small contributions uh, to publications or causes that, that he felt really attached to. And he led a life with a lot of joy and, and uh, as well as really great uh, politics. And in this article, I outlined really quickly eight things I learned from many conversations and interactions with Gerald Meyer. And I'll just sum them up real quickly here. And just think about this, you know, you, there are other, you know, but there might be other shows on this station or in other places where people will be like, you've got to give a $200 contribution for, you know, three CDs and you'll learn like the, you know, the secrets of a happy life. And uh, we're giving it away for free here. I'm going to share it with you in a minute. And if you see some value in this, please consider picking up the phone or going to give number two WBAI.org and making a contribution. So what were were the eight things I learned from Gerald Meyer uh, that I think are really worth uh, living by? Here we go. One, enjoy life. It goes by quickly. Two, be there for family and friends. Three, in one's political activism, don't get too far ahead of the masses of people by adopting positions they don't understand and may find alienating. Four, the left can only win if it's building its forces and becoming stronger. Be wary of divisive individuals who drive others away. Five, don't be a pompous blowhard who is well-versed in radical theory but treats other people badly. Six, protests only get you so far you have to build institutions if you want to wield power over the long haul. Seven, don't be stingy. Only leftists can fund the institutions like WBI. They need to win the world that they want. And eight, giving money can be a source of joy. It's an opportunity to live your values while helping create the change you want to see. Words to live by, courtesy of Jerry Meyer, amazing leftist um, organizer and supporter here in New York, uh, who who died in November, um, great friend of so many uh, left institutions. So 212-209-2950, give number two, WBAI.org. Um, anyway, hope you can uh, support this station. It's so important to keep that antenna and that transmitter at four times square. So moving to our second segment, uh, at, uh, private universities like Columbia are real estate juggernauts. I mean, Columbia has that $14 billion endowment. It also owns all sorts of valuable real estate here in New York City. 
And recently, uh, Matthew Thomas, a really excellent journalist, investigative reporter, uh, who writes at the as the vulgar Marxist on his Substack, I wrote an article called "Empty the Universities: A Red Red Alliance to Reform the Real Property Tax," and he's going to uh, join us here to talk about that some more. Uh, Matthew, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you for having me. Sure. So, uh, can you just lay out what's going on with uh, Columbia and some of these other wealthy uh, universities that get to ev- evade? hundreds of billions of dollars in property taxes every year? Um, yeah, all reputable universities are registered um, as 501c3 nonprofit organizations. That is a designation um, from the IRS and the federal government that exempts uh, organizations with that designation from the federal income tax. Um, but states and localities also confer a number of benefits on 501c3s. The legal regimes are different for every jurisdiction, so some simply require that you provide them with proof that the federal government has given you this designation. Others do their own verification, um, but there's no connection to federal and this legal designation. Your, your, your sound is crack, cracking up a little bit there. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're, uh, that's better. Sorry. Um, and so... Just because the federal government designates an organization as a 501c3 does not obligate um, uh, other jurisdictions to give them any benefits, but yet they do. Um, And so one benefit that is almost universal in state and local jurisdictions is that um, such organizations are exempted from paying property taxes. And so normally this is, you know, not a big issue if an organization is small or doesn't own a lot of real property, perhaps just the office that they operate out of if they're like a small service provider um, or something like that. But uh, there's been tremendous growth in university real property holdings, um, especially at the elite and Ivy League levels over the past um, two decades or more. And so you have these institutions which have sprawling real estate portfolios um, that have really exploded over a number of years. And every time that they buy a new property, um, it becomes um, exempt from, from state and local property taxes. Uh, that's true in every state in the country. Um, but in New York, it's resulted in um, a, a shrinking of the tax base. And it's resulted in these institutions being able to grow very large um, and very wealthy without paying uh, commensurate taxes. In your report, uh, you say that Columbia uh, gets away with not having to pay $149 million a year in taxes, and its uh, t- twin uh, New York University um, uh, it gets out of paying $128 million per year in taxes. That's right. These are conservative estimates. So the Independent Bud- Budget Office, which is a city agency, um, provides advice uh, to lawmakers and to the public about how to either raise taxes or reduce spending. Um, they sort of put out these sort of uh, nonpartisan reports. They don't endorse any particular method. Uh, they just put information out there for people. To- you know, you, we've lost you for a little bit there. You, you still there, Matthew? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep. You're, okay, you're back again. No problem. I'm, I'm sorry. Um So the Independent Budget Office puts out this information every year. Um, What they do is they total up the tax exemption or the value of the tax exemption 
um, for a certain number of um, building types owned by these universities. Um, but there's only three designations. And so for, they're like student dormitory, um, academic buildings, and like faculty housing and things like that. Um, but for example, I think like performance spaces is another designation in the state tax code. So, you know, if NYU or Columbia has like a performance space, um, that might not be included here. Um, and hospitals um, are not included that are owned by like Columbia and NYU. And so these are conservative estimates. Um, but basically all told, um, private universities in New York City, um, if they were taxed, if their real property was taxed normally, um, then it would generate at least like 600 million every year um, in additional revenue for the city, um, which could be spent uh, much more productively. Um, and these uh, institutions can certainly afford it. Right. And, and a, a number of groups, uh, including the Democratic Socialists of America, um, the Professional Staff Congress at CUNY, the, the, the union and that represents the faculty at CUNY and other groups uh, have have launched a new deal for CUNY campaign, uh, uh, seeking more funding to uh, hire more faculty, repair the facilities, and, and uh, try to take CUNY back to being uh, a tuition free uh, university system like it was up until 1976. Uh, your your thoughts on the way they, these incredibly wealthy universities get out of paying taxes that in theory could uh, go to bolster CUNY, which serves over a quarter million working class students here in New York. Yeah, I think it's a very easy political case to make. I mean, um, and I think that there is a, an opportunity. I mean, part of the point of the piece was, um, oh, we're losing you again. Matthew? Can you hear me? Yes, oh, you're back. Sorry. Uh, I think it's my internet connection. Um, part of the point of the piece was to say that there is a potential bipartisan coalition for, um, you know, taxing these institutions. People on the left object to them because they fuel gentrification. They uh, perpetuate wealth inequality. Um, people on the right object to them because of cultural reasons, um, and they are culturally annoying um, and, you know, terribly hypocritical, obviously, um, you know, preaching about diversity and inclusion while, you know, uh, perpetuating such staggering inequality. Um, and so... Curtis Lewa, actually the Republican mayoral candidate in the past election, uh, ran on a version of this, um, although he gave a few too many exemptions, I think. Um, but it seems like he uh, wanted to exempt the, some of the private Catholic universities, yes, but, but wanted to tax the, uh, the uh, liberal elitist uh, universities. Yeah, well, I've got news for him. From him, they're all they're all liberal elites. Even at the, there's not too much Catholicism, I think, um, at some <laughs> of these places, um, but. But yeah, and so, but if you just simply removed uh, the uh, from from the state tax code the exemption for private universities, um, you could generate a huge amount of money that could be, you know, just sort of the provocation that I put in the in the piece was that you could split it basically. The libs get you know half of the revenue and the. Uh, Re Republicans get the other half, but there could be things that we give the Republicans that we could even support. So, for example, we could reduce property taxes on low-income seniors, which is something that even socialist lawmakers in New York have run on. So, the Republicans get a property tax cut that we also uh, here on the left would would be okay with, and then we could fund CUNY as well. But you know, that's just sort of a provocation to get people thinking about how you know there could be potential bipartisan buy-in for for such a proposal. 
and, and I mean, this it goes even beyond that, but I, I think there's some countries where private universities are rare or, or even maybe forbidden. And, and um, could, could we ever aspire to a day where Harvard becomes UMass Cambridge and Yale becomes uh, U- University of Connecticut at New Haven and maybe Columbia becomes uh, the CUNY uh, Morningside Heights campus? Oh, my gosh, I hope so. Um, I wish that that would be more um, advanced as a, as a credible um uh, program on the left. I think that you could get uh, actually a huge uh, or a significant buy-in uh, from uh, both sides. Um, and I mean, these universities are, especially at the elite level, the Ivy Plus um, are extremely pernicious. I mean, the amount of money they're sitting on is just unbelievable, which should absolutely be seized. But they also have a, a very negative cultural influence in terms of propping up and providing sinecures for, you know, uh, the ruling class to rotate in and out of as they go in and out of government, uh, titans of industry, um, and they're just incubators for, um, you know, the people that staff, um, you know, the hangers on of the ruling class that provide, you know, uh, that implement this sort of technology of government. Um, and and they groom the, the next generation. <laughs> yeah, the next generation of, of vampires. Yeah. So, uh well, uh, just to change gears, since we, we have just a little bit more time, you know, I, I've enjoyed reading your Substack over over the past year. You, you always make a lot of, uh, you know, you have you do your investigations and, and manage to make some provocative points along the way. And uh, um, you know, tomorrow uh, Kathy Hochul is going to give her state of the state of the state address and kind of lay out her uh, priorities. And um, uh, earlier this fall, you were arguing that 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 socialists uh, should turn more towards focusing um, on state and local governance, with so much uh, stymied at the federal level, uh, mm-hmm. as we've seen the Democrats uh, flounder in Congress for months now. Um, y- your your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it's you know it's unfortunate that she's totally in the pocket of all the same interests that Cuomo was in. Um, so I don't ex- <laughs> expect a lot of progress from her. Um, we're losing you a little bit. Can you hear me, John? Yeah, that, that that's better. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think where it's really dark situation at the federal level, um, I think we're headed for a huge red wave. We're not going to be able to pass any meaningful climate legislation for potentially. I mean, <laughs> we didn't pass any this time, and we can and the Dems control the federal government. Dems won't control it again for another ten years. Um, so. Yeah, I think that there is there are opportunities, particularly for New York. If I could give her one piece of advice, or you know, it, people in a position of influence, it would be to pursue public power um, and to make New York um, an exporter of publicly funded renewable energy. Um, if we could develop uh, renewable energy technology that could uh, generate excess energy, we could sell it to other states. Um, and what would that, that take? Would, what 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 um what steps do we need? She would. Uh, there would uh, the legislature would need to pass two bills um, that would allow for the state to currently, I believe, there's a cap on the amount of um, uh, energy that the state is allowed to to generate generate or the amount of construction that the state can undertake to generate 
um, energy, um, this is like an enforced monopoly for private energy interests, um, that needs to be removed. And uh, of course, there should be uh, the other bill uh, in this pairing would allow for the elected uh, for the election uh, for democratic regulators, basically, so we could elect the people to the people that would set the rates um, for how much we pay. Um, but yeah, we need to invest a substantial amount in building renewable energy infrastructure. And if we invest enough and we could generate excess energy, um, we could sell it um, to neighboring states to reduce not only our carbon impact, but that of our neighbors. Um, and I think that that would um, be something that would be really meaningful. It would make us money. It would be profitable. And it would be an alternative to federal climate action um, in the absence of any alternative. Right. And, and uh, before you go here, I mean, uh, a theme you uh, touch on a lot of your writing is sort of the distinction between uh, liberals and leftists or socialists. Uh, um, and, and you have a new piece up t- today uh, uh, called Class War in Chinatown. Uh, can you r- really quickly uh, summarize that piece and, and uh, you know, why, why you uh, uh, delved into the uh, politics that have been uh, perking up in uh, Chinatown. Yeah, I became interested in that piece. I mean, Chris Marte um, is the new councilman. He was gracious enough to agree to an interview uh, with me, the first one he's given since his primary victory in June of last year. Um, but he ran on a number of issues, but the one I was most interested in was the issue of home care workers, but immigrant women, mostly Chinese um, in lower Manhattan, who are forced to work 24-hour days while only being paid for 13 of those hours. Um, If that sounds shocking, it is shocking, but it is legal in New York, and they have been advocating for change to that law for a number of years, and they've met huge resistance, not only from their own union 1199, but from uh, so-called progressive lawmakers like Yulin Nu, um, who are allied and friends with and receive money from uh, the people that own the agencies um, that... Uh, mandate these types of working conditions and it's uh, really horrible and so uh marte's mother was a garment worker in his childhood she later became a home health aide and she worked those shifts and so he felt very deeply invested in it and he received a lot of support from uh those women uh who volunteered for his campaign and turned out to vote for him and so yeah so the pieces even expert. though he was dominican and there were chinese there was uh, yeah, common cause was found. Totally. I mean, there's, um, you know, Domin- uh, Dominicans are, and those are the two large, or Dominican and Chinese, I believe, are the two largest immigrant groups in, in New York City, but they both um, work in, have worked in the garment industry when that was a big thing. A lot of them transitioned to the home, home care sector. Um, and so there's huge opportunity for, um, you know, uh, solidarity across um, racial you're fading out a little bit. Already between those groups and, and others. And I think it was a really beautiful story of the coalition that he was able to build. So vulgarmarxism.substack.com for people that are interested. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. But Matthew Thomas, the Vulgar Marxist, thank you so much for joining us again on WBAI. Thanks a lot, John. You bet. So when uh, we come back after this short break, we are going to talk about uh, new legislation uh for uh, birthing centers in New, in New York and uh, new ways for uh, pregnant women to give birth. But um, yeah, we're going to talk with an advocate ab- around that and some of the controversy that still lingers uh, after Kathy Hochul signed that legislation. Back after this short break. 
Desse desse bara ma in dunia shida masnot. Sema desi lal koni usajiga fitot. Desse desse bara ma in dunia shida masnot. Sema desi lal koni usajiga fitot. Naidigo, naidumo, naidigo, naidum. That was Dese Barama, Peace by Hamza Eldin. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. Uh, once again, I uh, want to encourage everybody who can do so to give to WBI's Emergency Tower Fund, 212-209-2950. You can also go to give number 2 wbaiorg and make a one-time contribution or Sign up to be a WBAI buddy uh, for as little as $10 a month. If you made some New Year's resolutions, maybe one of them was to to become a WBAI buddy or to uh, give to this station. We've been in this emergency fund drive for uh, two or three weeks now, and, and we've raised a good amount of money to, to pay down the bills at uh, with the landlord at four times square, but we still need your support. And if you've been holding back on giving – it's a new year. It's a new day. This is the time to do it. 212-209-2950. This is a community radio station. It Its ability to be on the air is simply because of the community of listeners we have. When you give, you are strengthening that community. You're keeping this station on the air. You're keeping this station a, a unique resource that it's not dependent on big corporate funders um, or, or uh, big corporate underwriters or any of that kind of stuff. And, and this can be a station where you get really unique programming around news and current events uh, like this show uh, and, and so many other shows, also great cultural uh, programming, music programming. That's not just the latest, you know, hits or, or late, whatever some, you know, um, uh, clear channel algorithm uh, says we should be playing, but, unique independent programming here at WBAI, but we got to keep that antenna and that transmitter uh, up on the top of uh, four times square, that 52 story skyscraper in the middle of New York that where we beam our signal across the greater New York city region. 212-209-2950. Give number two, WBAI.org. I, like I was saying, I, I a little earlier, I was talking about my, a good friend, uh, Gerald Meyer, who passed away recently. And, you know, one of the things he always emphasized again was that you know, the left and progressive forces have to build their own institutions. They have to fund them and support them because nobody else is going to do it for us. The, you know, the, the, the corporate class, the corporate, our corporate uh, elite certainly aren't going to fund a station like uh, WBAI. Um, we've got to do it ourselves. Now, if you're someone uh, who's done well in life and 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 has uh, 
a lot of you know some extra disposable income around you want to give you know five hundred a thousand five thousand dollars more power to you thank you so much we need that kind of support but we also need the support of so many of our listeners maybe you can't give as much maybe you can only give you know ten fifteen twenty dollars you're on a fixed income it still helps a lot two one two two zero nine two nine five zero give number two wbai dot org so in our third segment we are going to talk about uh, uh birthing uh birthing centers midwives and and the, really this l- long running uh, organizing campaign to uh give uh pregnant people uh alternatives for how they bring their children into the world and, and um right now in new york that's almost entirely done through the hospital system uh many women do not need to go to the hospital there's other potential ways uh they can have birth and, and do it safely and, and, and in a in a more uh compassionate and holistic manner and joining us to talk about that uh is nilu uh, shruti who um is the uh, founder of one love uh in the west village uh which Hold on here. I lost my notes for one second. Um, uh, yeah, so the, uh, she's the founder of, uh, I'm sorry, Love Child, a support space for expecting new parents located uh, in Manhattan's West Village. And she's been uh, very active in a coalition of birth justice advocates that have long fought, fought for changes in uh, in the laws around uh, birthing centers and, and midwifery, midwifery and and Kathy Hochul uh, recently signed legislation that sailed through the legislature this year, um, but um, that made changes to these laws, but the changes didn't go nearly as far as uh, some advocates had hoped. And and they've sharply criticized Hochul after the final deal was reached. So joining us now to talk about all this is Nilu Shruti. Um, Nilu, welcome to WBAI. Thank you for having me, John. Sure. Um, now, before we talk about the new birthing center law that was uh, signed last week and the legislative sausage making that took place, uh, can you lay out what the benefits of uh, midwife-led birthing centers are in terms of both the care received and affordability compared to hospital births? Of course. Um, birth centers are out of hospital. They can also sometimes be located within a hospital but majority of them are located out of hospital. They are a home-like environment. Um, And nine out of 10 pregnant people would qualify to give birth in a birthing center. So these are folks who are low risk, who have no particular pregnancy complications. And birth centers are typically staffed and owned by midwives. New York State, uh, the benefits of birth centers are that um, they have a vastly reduced C-section rate. So the C-section rate at birth centers is 6% compared to anywhere between 28, 30, 50% at some New York City hospitals. Um, The level of safety is similar between um, both hospitals and BERT centers, with BERT centers actually having improved outcomes um, as compared to hospitals. In New York, we don't have any BERT centers. We only have three BERT centers in all of New York State um, as compared to California that has 50-something plus. Texas has 90-something plus BERT centers. And especially during a pandemic, um, pregnant people deserve safe out-of-hospital birthing options. Right. And what was uh, what was transformative about the legislation that sailed through the state legislature 
um, in, in 2021. And and how did it get altered by Go- Governor Kathy Hochul before she signed it uh, last Friday? Yes, this is a really long story. So um, midwives were. Got I, the I know ability. you'll keep it short. I will keep it a short. The midwives got the ability to open birth centers in 2016. The regulations didn't pass until the pandemic. Um, and so that process was took a really long time. When the regulations came out, um, as set out by the DOH, they were incredibly prohibitive. And so this new law that was introduced made it so that any birth center that achieved national recognition, national accreditation, would be able to get license from immediately get licensed from the state process. So the state DOH process um, was an incredible barrier. What happened, though, was that we had this great bill that passed unanimously through the House and the state Senate. However, in the chapter amendment process, it was significantly changed to where um, the state process continues to be a big burden for people to be able to open birth centers. And, and when we talk about the chapter amendment process, you're talking about the part where, where essentially the governor gets to edit the legislation uh, more to uh, her liking. Exactly. And um, I wasn't familiar with the chapter amendment process until we just went through it. Um, it is very, um, it's highly secretive. Um, it is very confidential. It's not public. Um, and the typically it's used just to make small amendments and it's not supposed to change the original intent of the bill. However, in this case, it did. Mm. Um, and and you know, it really uh, indicates the uh, extensive powers of the governor here in the state of, of New York. Um, to, exactly. To be able to essentially go back and rewrite uh, legislation uh, like that. Um, and, and so, as I understand with this legislation, it's going to. Uh, create some uh, opportunities uh, for wealthy suburban communities, but it's it's unlikely to be of much help to less well-resourced communities here in the city and in other parts of the state. Is that correct? That is my interpretation. Um, What we see with the way that these, the Department of Health now has to write new regulations that merge both national and state standards. However, the state application process through the Public Health and Health Planning Council remains. And this is a really expensive and lengthy process. And most people who have to go through this process end up having to hire a special lawyer in order to do so. Um, The process also takes anywhere up to 18 months to complete. Um, And so only people who have the ability to own property or have the ability to lease commercial space for 18 months, that is the time that it takes for this application to be complete, would be able to open birth centers. And typically people who have those kind of resources are going to be in wealthier communities versus, um, you know, the racial disparities in maternal mortality show that the places that really need birth centers and community um, maternity support are not that wealthy and don't have such resources. And so I do think that this amendment leaves a lot of um, uh, much needed communities behind. Right. And last year, you wrote an article for The Independent, a headline, Black Mothers Matter, in which you described a process going back more than a century to medicalize the birth process and push uh, midwives to the margins. How has that harmed Black women? Well, in particular, a hundred years ago, there were many, many more Black midwives who served Black communities. Um, And through the process of 
um, legislation and medicalization, um, these Black midwives were uh, put out of business. They were completely um, um, eliminated. Their profession was eliminated. And in replacement came a very white-led nurse midwifery workforce. And so um, Black women suffer mainly because they don't have the same type of community level support that you would expect due to um, structural racism and the elimination of um, midwifery and because there aren't as many opportunities for um, midwives of color to serve their communities. Mm. And so why is it so hard to make progress on this in New York state when other states, including Texas, I mean, Texas has more than 90 birthing centers. California has more than 50 uh, birthing centers. And so they've made a lot of progress. Uh, is this a case of uh, bureaucrats here in New York finding ways to keep themselves busy? Or are there private economic interests that people like Governor Hochul and Governor Cuomo before her um, are protecting? Well, New York is a very special case where um, we do have really strong corporate healthcare interests, as well as real estate interests, as Matthew pointed out earlier. Um, and as you cover so well in the indie. Um, in this particular case, yes, um, midwives uh, are often having to um, cede power uh, to physician interests and uh, birth centers and um, out of hospital uh, facilities, community facilities often have to cede power to hospital interests and corporate interests. And so, um, as you well know, the healthcare industry is one that um, is uh, that I think has a really strong hold on um, on New York State, and um, in our particular case, the Department of Health has a really strong iron fist on this process without any give um, whatsoever. Mm. And, and from going through the through the this political process in recent weeks uh, with Governor Hochul, do you feel like we're with her administration we're seeing? Cuomoism without Cuomo. I mean, she's got a much nicer demeanor, but underlying that, is this what we're getting? Um, well, interestingly, as you um, you should say that because during our negotiations, we were told um, this is uh, we wouldn't have gotten what what we were told was um, uh, this is basically like this is slightly better than what what you would have gotten with Cuomo. Um, and that that was kind of the expectation that we should get that slightly better is good enough, um, which um, I definitely disagree with. OK, well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Neelu Shruti, birth justice advocate and founder of Love Child, a support space for expecting and new parents. Thank you so much for joining us on 99.5 FM. Thank you so much for having me, John. You bet. Always great to have you join us. Alrighty, so uh, that just about wraps it up for uh, t tonight's uh, independent news hour. Uh, I, however, I'll be back after this short break, and we'll be hosting WBAI Evening News. I'll be filling in for uh, Evening News' regular host, Paul DiRienzo, who is out today. And um, after some of our after our top of the hour headlines, I'll be joined by New York City public advocate Jamani Williams. We'll talk about Omicron and the crisis in New York City's public schools, his run for governor and other good things. And uh, I think we might even be uh, taking some calls from listeners. So stay tuned. Keep your dial on 99.5 FM, and we'll be back shortly with the WBAI Evening News.